in today's message, we're going to talk about a man who had a descent. And some, some of his friends picked him up, brought him to the top of the roof, dug a hole in the roof, and lowered him right before Jesus so he could have an experience like he has never had in his life before. So we're going to pick up there in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 5. And would you stand with me this morning? As we read verse 17 is where we're going to kick it off. Luke chapter 5, verse 17, and it says, On one of those days he was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Everybody say the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way, everybody say no way. To bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked, him, picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized all the people, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today heavenly father we pray that you would bless the reading of your word to our whole being spirit soul and body lord we pray right now that in the mighty name of jesus that we would receive a miracle this morning but god also this morning we would have the the divine revelation about going and being somebody's miracle this morning lord i pray for transformational services today where souls are saved lives are changed and glory is brought to your name like never before in jesus name we pray and all god's people said amen so today as we're kicking this off I want you to remember this verse that you repeated, and the Bible says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal that day as Jesus was there. And as we kick this series off, we're going to set the scene this morning, and we're going to talk about the city where Jesus did this miracle. It's called Capernaum, and we're going to talk a little bit about the scene of Capernaum, what it was really like to get you back in the time where Jesus was. Now, the town of Capernaum is reported to have been the hometown of also uh, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and the tax collector Matthew, and that's where some of the disciples came from was this town called Capernaum. And on one Sabbath, Jesus taught in the synagogue in Capernaum and healed a man who was there who had an unclean spirit. Now, the thing you need to know about Capernaum is uh, when you go through seminary, they call it Jesus' ministry headquarters. It's Jesus' ministry headquarters because this is where Jesus did most of the miracles in his ministry. He hung out there for almost a year and a half of his ministry and did tons of things and did mighty miracles. This is where basically the unveiling of Jesus happened and Jesus launched his earthly ministry here at this point. And so one of the miracles that he did is that he healed the man with the unclean spirit. Also, according to Luke 7, this is where the Roman centurion asked Jesus to heal his servant. And he said, Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be made whole. He did that miracle. He did the miracle we're going to talk about today where they lowered the man through the roof and the paralyzed man got up and walked. And as this was the public of his, the center of his public ministry after he left Nazareth, Capernaum when you think about Jesus' public ministry taking place, we always think, wow, this must be a pretty rocking, happening city. Actually, it was anything but. The city of Capernaum, they say, at the largest point of Jesus' time would have had about 1,500 people. The actual inner city limits of Capernaum would have probably held 150 to 200 people in the main area. Everybody else was kind of on the outskirts of the city. So this wasn't a big city. But the thing about this city not being very big is it seemed to have an amazing amount of faith 
in this city where Jesus could do an amazing amount of miracles in this city. And Jesus began to do a mighty work in the area of Capernaum so much that people came from larger cities to a smaller city to see the power of God that was moving in this place. Now, I began as I read about Capernaum and study the size of this city, I, I, I realized Sulphur Springs is not the biggest city in the world. Can I get an amen? I mean, we're just hoping to get a Starbucks here sometime soon. Amen? I mean, just, just, just God bless us with something. Amen? And, but as we know, Sulphur Springs isn't a big city. You don't have to be a big city to have big faith. Amen? And so what I want this city to become is a city that may not be large in size, but a city that's very large in faith. A city that would exemplify the miracles and the glory of God where people really aren't worried about the size of the city when they need a miracle. People will drive from a big city to a small city to receive a miracle. People will actually leave a city and go out to the middle of nowhere to receive a miracle because I always say this, we're pretty blessed as the way Bible church because God's got us out seemingly in the middle of nowhere in Martin Springs on 24 acres, but you know what the amazing thing about that is? Anytime God wants to do something major, a mighty movement, it seems like he brings his people out to the middle of nowhere. He brought Ezekiel out to the middle of a desert, put him in a place called the Valley of Dry Bones where everything was dead and dead, not dead and dying, dead and dead, because the bones were very dry, the Bible says. And he rose up a vast army and said, this will be my nation of Israel that I'm rising up. He brought John the Baptist out into the desert and he began to baptize many and people came from all the cities to the desert to see John the Baptist. So if we're in the presence of John the Baptist and Ezekiel, we're in pretty good company, amen? And so just because we're in a small town in a small area does not mean we have to have small faith here in the Northeast Texas area. I believe in a small place you can have large faith to transform the area that you're called to be in. And so I want you to realize that just because Jesus was in a small place, it didn't mean his ministry would stay small. And in fact, he has the world's largest ministry ever. And so that's the city of Capernaum. Now, Jesus, it says here in this story, was in a house. And the house that we're picturing, it's not like the houses me and you live in, a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house, whether it's got siding or brick or something like that. The actual size of the house that Jesus was probably in probably wouldn't have been much bigger than the stage area that we're standing on here. It would have probably been about this size, and if it was more than a one-room house, it probably had a wall that would have a little opening to go between room to room and have a wall down the middle, and you'd have two rooms. You would have the sleeping quarters where the whole family slept in the same room. Everybody say, thank you, Jesus, for a new style of house. Amen. Listen, I know things were, I, Jesus had a great ministry, but I'm glad we got the things we have today in America, amen? So I'm never dogging those things. So you had the sleeping quarters, and then you had the living quarters, which at most would have had probably some kind of table with some rock benches over here where the family would get together and eat inside if it was cold outside. And they probably didn't do hardly any of their cooking inside at all. And if they did, it would have been a bigger house than this, and it would have been back in one corner. But they did most of their cooking probably outside. Like many times if you go to a foreign country today, they do that. They have no running water, utilities, or electricity inside, so they do their cooking outside. And so that's the size of the house that they lived in. And in the house that they lived in, um, the roof of the house would have been uh, had beams running across like this, but then they would have laid branches down all across the loop, roof of the house, and then they would have got mud and covered the whole roof of the house, and then as they put a good coat of mud on it, the sun in the Middle East would bake the mud into the branches and make a very firm roof, strong enough for people to walk up a staircase on the side of the house, and in the summertime, they, many of the people would sleep on the roofs of the houses. I hope you don't sleep, walk or roll in your sleep, amen. And so they would sleep on the roofs of the houses that were strong enough for men and women to walk on, but 
they were still able to be dug through because it was mud and tree branches. And, and most of the time, every other year, they would have to redo the roofs of their, their houses. And so the, as the roofs were made of mud, they were strong enough for people to stay on. And so Jesus, let's picture where he's at. He's in this house about the size of this stage. And as he's in this house, he's probably speaking if it's a one-room house in the back center of the room. And people are packed in. And the house could probably hold at the very most 50 people as everybody's crammed in here shoulder to shoulder. And it's not like Americans where you sit down and put your Bible in this chair and your person in this chair because you want your chair and the two beside you because you like your space amen right some of y'all are like I do like this I'm glad you went to two services pastor I kind of missed stretching my feet out and kicking them up and you know and so in this you got people crammed into a house everywhere and then you got people so full in this house that they're outside the doors and they're leaning in the windows and they're sitting in the window cells and they're peeking around trying to just get a look at this amazing man that they that everybody calls Jesus and to see what he's about to do, because as you'll remember in this account, the Bible says, and the power of the Lord was there to heal that day. And so not only were all the crowds of Capernaum there, but the Bible says something very unique and interesting. Jesus was doing such a ministry that the Pharisees and the scribes came from Galilee and Judea and all the surrounding areas to hear him. So this is where the account takes place, and that's where the scene sets. And so Jesus, he begins to dive first. And as Jesus dives in Luke 5, 17, it says, One of those days Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and even from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, as we get there, I want to talk to you about Pharisees and scribes for just a minute. Now, the scribes of the day, they would have been the top people of the day. They would have been the interpreters of the law. They would have been like the people of the justice system in today's society. They would interpret the laws, but the Pharisees were the people right below them. They would have been the enforcers of the law, and I like to call those people like they were the holy police of their day. They would make sure all the people were doing their right thing and make sure they were doing their job and make sure they were doing their sacrifices. Some of you can relate to the holy police, amen? <laughs> okay, some of y'all didn't get that. <laughs> or some of y'all are offended by that, one of the two. And, and you know the people I'm talking about, the people in church who are the holy police. Make sure we do this just right and that just right and you got to do this just right and that just right. And I'm not talking about sanctification and aspiring to holiness, I'm talking about doing the traditional things and make sure all the traditional things are done absolutely perfect and they become the enforcers of the area so you had all the crowds of people coming in and you had the pharisees and the scribes coming in also and they were sitting there and the pharisees were sitting there with a judgmental look at jesus christ as jesus was teaching and he was judged they were judging what jesus was saying and have you ever been in a place where you've been in we'll just say a workplace environment where you have coworkers that aren't necessarily doing their job or aren't doing their job at all, and so somebody else steps up to do their job, and then the person who's supposed to be doing it gets mad because that person did their job when they were supposed to be doing their job, but because they weren't doing it, they stepped up to did it, but then they got mad because of it. Did you catch all that? Some of y'all are like, this is Sunday morning. My mind isn't clicking that fast. Well, come to first service and then sit through second service. You'll catch everything you missed in both. Amen. And, and so Jesus is over here doing literally... The healing that these people had the authority to do, but were not walking in. So the problem is, is I want you to begin to think through this message. Do I line up more with the people of the Pharisees? Now, some of y'all are thinking, oh, I know that's not me. Well, then you better check yourself, because if you're already saying that, it means you may already be one. And so line up, if your life is lining up with the Pharisees over here, or the some men who we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. Because the Bible says Jesus had the, was there with the power to heal 
They were there literally, if you read and study the Old Testament, had the authority to heal. They just weren't using it. And so the Bible, as we begin to read it, it talks about the Pharisees and they had this vast knowledge but did nothing. Jesus obviously had vast knowledge because he's Jesus, but did everything. See, Pharisees have a theology of healing. Jesus had an authority of healing. The Pharisees had a theology of healing where Jesus had the authority of healing. Now, listen, theology is simply what your knowledge of the scriptures is. Now, there's nothing wrong with theology. Everybody needs to have theology. Everybody needs to gain more theology, as a matter of fact. And you need to study the scriptures in an amazing way, and you need to gain vast knowledge of the scriptures. I am a firm believer in studying the word of God, right? I believe you need to read the Bible every single day. I, need you, I believe it's your daily bread. I believe you need to study the Word of God. I, need you, I believe you need to figure out how to break out a concordance and use the Greek and the Hebrew. And, and some of you are thinking, well, I just don't know how to do that. I didn't either until I broke one out and just taught myself how to do it. And listen, if I can teach myself how to do it, believe me, you can teach yourself how to do it, okay? I'm not the smartest cookie in the, in, in the cookbook, okay? I just try harder than most. And so in this, you need to get a theology of what you believe. But here's the difference between theology and authority. Theology has a great knowledge of the scripture and what you believe. Authority has a great knowledge of the scriptures and what you believe. Puts it into action and sees Bible results. Okay, did you catch that? A lot of church members, a lot of people in American churches have a great vast knowledge of what they believe and they call it their theology and many of it it's because what your mommy and daddy taught you, not really what the Bible says, so you're going with that theology Okay, and so you got a theology of what you believe, but you never see any Bible results. Well, the difference is authority and a theology are two different things. Authority has theology, but it puts it into action and sees Bible results. So we got to become a church that not just has a theology, but walks in authority. Amen. And as we begin to walk in authority, people will begin to understand we know our theology. If you go tell somebody how much you know about the Bible, you're going to bore them to death. If you meet them at their point of need because you walk in authority, then they're going to ask you about your theology. Right? Listen, if you walk into work tomorrow and one of your coworkers has a horrible, horrible cold, and you begin to go up and pray for them, and by the noonday hour they're completely healed, they're going to begin to ask you about your theology. If you go into work tomorrow and you've got a coworker that's got a horrible, horrible cold, and you begin to tell them about your theology, they're going to go home sicker than they came in. <laughs> Because they don't want to hear your theology. They want to see your authority. Then they'll want to know about your theology. So it's time we begin to walk in authority, not just have a theology. And so the question I want to begin to ask you today is, as we begin this story, is if you have a theology but no authority, who is the real paralyzed people in the story? Who are the real paralyzed people in the story? You have a paralytic that's going to come in here in just a little bit because his friends lower him through a roof. He physically cannot walk. But you have, the, you have the, the, the Pharisees in this story who have literally stopped a movement of God for over 400 years. Because from the time Jesus was born and the angels broke the silence in the heaven, that is the first time God had spoken in 400 years. All along they had their theology, but God never spoke. So who is really paralyzed in the story? There's an amazing parallel in the story between the man on the mat and the Pharisees sitting here. Now, the Bible says the, author, the power was there to heal all of them who were there. The power was there to heal. So just as Jairus, as we studied a couple weeks ago, he was the ruler of the synagogue. He was the exact authority of some of these people. Walked up and said, Jesus, I need you to come heal my daughter. She's dying. These people could have got in with Jesus and got a miracle just as well. But they decided to say, sitting there in their theology, 
Well, Jesus began to walk in authority. Now, what I'm going to begin to ask you may kind of make it difficult for you to listen to me just for a moment, but is what you're doing in your Christian walk, what you say is your Christian walk, is it paralyzing a movement of God? You think you're doing right. You think you got the Christian thing down. But if you're not seeing Bible results in your life, you need to check if your theology or what you're doing is literally paralyzing a movement of God rather than helping a movement of God. So in this story, as we go through the Pharisees and we see where they're sitting, and then we talk about some men and a paralytic here in just a little bit and see where they're sitting, I want you to begin to see which one your life lines up more like, okay? And here's what I need you to do. I need you to be an, uh, an honest bystander looking at your life and comparing it to two different sides here, some men or the Pharisees. And a lot of us are going to realize, and I've had to repent of this for myself at times, that sometimes my life lines up more with the pharisaical outlook than an authority that sees Bible results. And when I realize my life lines up with more of a pharisaical outlook than a, than a Bible-based uh, belief system that gets results, it's time that I repent because I will be paralyzing a movement of God, not helping a movement of God. And it's time that Joel Tmeyer realized at his one point in his life that God is bigger than my box that I've got him in. And we're very funny if we think we've got God in a box because really it's just God holding up our box, <laughs> waiting for us to get the revelation that he's holding our box. We haven't fit him in the box. And so when we begin to say, God, you have control of the box that I'm in and that I'm trying to put you in, and begin to take the box completely out of the picture, it's amazing what God can begin to do when we let God be the ruler of our lives. And so Jesus, when he spoke to this man, the paralytic that was being brought in, he said this, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. He didn't say, you're healed. Did you ever catch that? You read the story and you got a man who needs a healing and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Who's he really talking to in the story? I know he looked at the man and the man got up and the man walked. But the man was simply an illustration of what the hearts of the Pharisees really were. And when he said your sins are forgiven, he was giving them an opportunity to get in on it. But instead they did what a good Pharisee would do and they began to pass judgment on people. They began to look at the people and say, who is this who says they can forgive sins and does blasphemies? They began to get upset because something changed and it questioned their theology. Now, if you walked in next Sunday morning and I had every chair in the sanctuary gone and I said, we're just going to worship from sitting on the floor. And what we're going to do is I just need you to sit on the floor and do the crisscross applesauce to be politically correct. Now that's how you got to say it. You can't do the old school terminology that we did growing up. Right? Some of y'all haven't been in public schools in a while. You can't say certain terms. Okay? And so you got to sit down. you got to worship from the floor. Some of you would be like, oh, no. I will not do this. This, this. this is not right. We've always had chairs to sit on as long as we've been in church, whether it be a pew or a chair. And we start getting upset that the pastor took all the chairs. And you'd put up with me for one week. Oh, he's just being his crazy self, trying to get a point across. <laughs> but what if I did it for the next two weeks? What if I said for the next six weeks we're not going to have any chairs in the sanctuary? <laughs> Some of y'all will be like, I'm going to take a six-week sabbatical. 
when we all quit coming, he'll put them back in. <laughs> or what if I just didn't go that far and I said, and you came in next Sunday and all the chairs were turned backwards and you're facing that wall. Some of you, it would throw your worship off so bad because you've sat in the same chair and worshiped from the same point in every service since we opened this building. <laughs> and because I switched the chairs around to another direction, you literally can't worship in the same spot. <laughs> all right? And, and you'd get upset about that because I've seen it because once in a while I'll do this. Everybody get up and just switch seats from wherever you came in at. And I'll go sit over here and it's weird to sit on this side of the church. I'm just saying. Not that y'all are weird. I'm just, I sit there every Sunday, you know. So it's just as much me as it is for y'all. And if I said to sit over there, some of y'all get upset with that. And listen, we're just talking about chairs. We're not even talking about theology yet. Do you understand how, how our lives, even that we think we're doing so good as Christians, how something as simple as chairs or changing the color of the carpet will mess up a church? Can I tell you that we're lining up more with this group over here on the pharisaical side than seeing the Bible results of authority on this side? And some of us in this process, we don't realize it, but we completely paralyze a movement of God because our hearts, whether we know it or not, are filled with sin because we're mad at the pastor because he turned the chairs to look the other way. Do, do we understand where we're going with this message? I need you really to begin to compare your life. And are we as an individual, as Joel, because of the way I've just always had my mindset things on stuff and, and the way I've literally you can shut things out that are even things of God because you've never even just thought in that direction. Have I even paralyzed the movement of God in our church at times? And you know, I repent before you today because I know there's times in the past, as I look back at the past 15 years of ministry since we started this church, that because I thought it should be a certain way that I've really paralyzed a movement of God until my heart got right, and then I began to realize what God was trying to do all along so God's movement could start again. I don't want you falling into the same trap I've fallen into before. So in this process of going through today's message, Jesus is telling you, your sins are forgiven. Rise up and walk and start a movement of God. Rise up and walk and start a movement of God in your life. And so that's where Jesus dives. And now it's your turn to dive. And now it's your turn to get in on this message. We've talked about which side do we line up with. We've got the theological side and then we've got the authoritative side. The authoritative side knows the word of God, puts it into action and sees Bible results. You've got the theological side that they had a theology of it, but there was no action with it, so it made them very pharisaical in their outlook. And now the Bible jumps into verse 18 and we're through the first verse of this message. Amen. And now we're into verse 18 and it says, And behold, some men, everybody say, some men. Just stop right there. Say, some men. Now, this men didn't have titles. It didn't say they were on the city council. It didn't say they were on a board. It didn't say they were on a committee. It didn't say they were an elder or a deacon. It didn't say any of these things. It just said they were some men. Kind of like a couple weeks ago we read the story of the uncounted people. This one just said it was some men. Some men came on the scene. No titles, no authority. And they came up and it says, And some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the, midst, in the midst there before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now I really believe, and I preached on this the past two or three weeks, that it's time for you to receive a miracle. 
It's time for you to get a miracle. It's time for you to have a miracle. It's time for God to do a breakthrough in your life. And I still believe that and I still agree with that and I still, I still, I still desire that 100%. But here's where we take it a step farther. It's not time for just you to get a miracle. It's time for you to go be somebody's miracle too. Because many people, you're praying for a miracle, but God can't get you to a miracle till he gets you to his path, to, till he gets you on his path for your life. The quickest way to get on God's path for your life is for you to go be somebody else's miracle. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Some of you, you're needing a marriage breakthrough or a financial breakthrough or a kid breakthrough. You're needing some kind of breakthrough in your life. The best thing you can do if you're in that is to go be somebody else's miracle. What do I mean by that? If you're praying for marriage restoration in your household, start praying for not just your marriage, but somebody else's marriage as well who's struggling. I didn't say go talk to them and tell them all your problems. I didn't say get counseling from them. I didn't say go to them and y'all start bashing each other's spouses because you're in the same position and call it a prayer session. I didn't say any of that. Okay? I'm just qualifying myself. <laughs> Damon, can I get an amen on that? We, we've seen that so, some, sometimes happen. And so what I need you to do is just begin to pray for somebody. Begin to put into action what you say you really believe because by doing something for somebody else and praying for their miracle, you can't start doing the will of God and not be in the will of God. See, a lot of people are so upset you're sitting over here, oh God, I just need my miracle. And I'm just going to stay here, I'm going to stand and believe. I'm believing. I'm believing. I'm believing. And all along you're sitting there not moving and you're not getting in the will of God, and you're not getting your miracle. But the minute you become just somebody and see a need and go to meet that need, you begin to automatically put yourself in God's will because you're doing unto somebody else that you would want something done to you as. And so it automatically puts you in the will of God. And when you find yourself carrying somebody else on a bed to Jesus, you find your miracle along the way. Do you see how somebody else in your path that may be in your workplace that you don't have no desire to help, that needs help, when you begin to help them, God begins to help you. See, it's not just time for you to get a miracle, it's time for you to go be somebody's miracle. And in you being somebody's miracle, more than likely God will get you your miracle. But so many of us, we just sit here asking for our own miracle, and then you'll get it sometimes, and you never do anything beyond that. We'll touch on that in just a little bit. So it's not just time for you to get a miracle. It is time for you to go be somebody's miracle and watch what God can begin to do. And in this, the Bible says that some men were bringing a man on a bed who was paralyzed. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about um, Jesus when he fed the 5,000. He fed the 5,000, he broke the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples. The miracle didn't happen in the hands of Jesus. It happened in the hands of who? The disciples. Not just the disciples, but every time they broke off a piece of bread and handed it to old boy right here in this circle, and he broke off his piece and passed it, and they broke off their piece and passed it, it didn't just happen in the hands of Jesus, it happened in the hands of the disciples and the 5,000 others and the 10,000 others who were uncounted. So you had over about 20,000 people that day doing a miracle. Last week, we talked about turning water into wine. In this process, Jesus didn't lift a finger. Jesus stood back and he said, servants, fill the water jars up. So they filled them to the brim. He said, now go take some out and take it to the master of the ceremony. The guys looked at each other and said, this dude's crazy. We're all fixing to die anyway. Hey, here we go. <laughs> That's true. 
They dip the water out, because it was water at that time. They dip it out, and sometime between the time they dipped it out and the time the, the master of the ceremony tasted it, it turned into wine. Jesus never touched it. The miracle happened in the hands of the servants. Now, in this story here that we're reading today, Jesus does do this miracle. And Jesus does do this miracle by speaking a word. But the miracle never would have happened if somebody, some men, didn't take it upon themselves to get a man in a mat and bring him before Jesus. The miracle would have never happened if it wasn't for four men who said, I'm ready to be a part of a miracle. And listen, i got to have you understand faith just for a minute. A lot of people put this huge supernatural definition on faith. And we begin to put this definition on faith that becomes so overwhelming where faith is, it is supernatural, but faith is not just supernatural. Faith is literally what you do in the natural. Faith, you can qualify it as this is your definition of faith. Faith is what I do in the natural will show what I have faith in. Okay? So in this, faith is what the men were doing in the natural. And as the men were doing something in the natural by faith, bringing a man simply with what they could do with their own abilities, Jesus did the miracle and they became a part of the miracle of God because the Bible didn't look at the man and say when Jesus saw his faith, he said when he saw their faith. It said he saw their faith, talking about the four men carrying the man on the mat. Now the man on the mat had to have some faith because I know Jeff and Damon and and, and Mitch and, and, and I know you guys very well, but to let you guys lower me on a bed down to for Jesus on the top of a roof, when I can't do nothing about it, I, just, I got some faith in God, but I also got faith in my boys. <laughs> They're not going to drop me, and I, I know the guys I work with. They'd be like, whoop, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. They'd lower me halfway down. It's like, hey, y'all ready for this? <laughs> whoop, just kidding, Joel. We got you, baby. And bring me before the feet of Jesus. In this process of faith, Faith is what you do in the natural, and I love what, what, what Jeff, and, Jeff and Amy have taught me, and that's what the, their Bible school professor taught them, and they said, how do you spell faith? It's called W-O-R-K. How do you spell faith? It's called W-O-R-K. It's called work. Because I got faith in God and what he's going to do here at this church, we work our rears off at this church to see the amazing movement of God take place. Because these men had faith in Jesus, they did the work to get a man to Jesus. Because you have faith in Jesus, it's not you sit here and pray, oh God, I pray that you would fill this church. You pray that, but then you go get somebody and bring them to church. Right? So faith is what you do in the natural. Now, if you have to measure whether you line up with the Pharisees or you line up with Jesus by how many people you've brought to church in the past month, how many people have brought, don't raise your hand, okay? Don't. You've brought people to church. Because of your faith in what God was going to do in their life here. See, a lot of us say we have faith, but we have no actions that correspond with it. See, authority is this. It's knowing what the Bible says, stepping out by faith and seeing Bible results. Going and doing the work and seeing Bible results. And so in this process, as the men were bringing this man before Jesus, they began to do the work of Jesus. And now... As they were bringing the man to Jesus, the Bible says when they got before Jesus, they got there and they saw the crowd and there was no way, everybody say no way, to get to Jesus. 
Now here's the one thing I got you. I got to tell you about faith. Whenever you start walking in faith, you're going to operate in a, in a counteracting force called friction. Okay, and I don't understand why uh, believers do not believe in friction. Okay, friction is this. Friction is the force resisting the relative motion. Okay, so here, here's what I need to do. I'm going to show you what friction really is. Johnny, can I have you stand up for a minute? And Johnny, if you'll come stand up right here, right here in the front. Johnny's a bigger boy than me, all right? So Johnny, I'm going to ask you to take it easy on me, okay? I'm fixing to start walking to you. When I get close to you, you got to be my friction. And here's what you simply got to do. Just hold your hands out like this and, and stop me. Don't boom and knock me flat on my hiney, okay? I know you can. J just be friction. Don't be a, don't be a, I'm not a punching bag, okay? And so as I begin to walk towards Johnny, the Bible says they were walking to the crowd and they saw the crowd and there was no way, can everybody say friction? They experienced friction, okay? And so I'm going to begin to walk towards Johnny. All right, I got to make this real, real. Can you come help me right quick? Here we go. He needs to be brought to Jesus. He was brought to Jesus a couple weeks ago. I'm just using this as an example. Amen. So if I'm being in faith, I've picked him up, and he's got to be brought to Jesus. So you're going to start walking with me in just a minute. Johnny's going to be my friction. You're not his friction. You're my friction, okay, because I'm bringing him to Jesus. And so as we begin to walk, you just stop us here in a minute, okay? All right, here's my friend bringing you to Jesus. Hope you're doing good today. Everything. What did I encounter? Friction. When you start doing the work of God, you're going to encounter something called friction. It's a force that's opposing you, that's trying to slow you down and stop you. And believers, for some reason, have a problem with friction. You can go sit down. Thank you, guys. Give them the hand clap. <laughs> believers, for some reason, have a problem with friction. We start walking by faith, and the minute friction rises, oh, God, I just can't make it no more. I did this by faith, and then this, this, this thing happened, and it stopped me, and I just can't get to church no more. We believe more in whining than crying than faith. I mean, we, we do. I stepped out and started tithing, and, and I got a flat tire. I guess it's just not meant for me to tithe. It's not meant for me to do this. I, I hear this stuff all the time. I stepped out by faith and started teaching, teaching, a, teaching a base group. I was leading a base group, and, and you, wouldn't you know, my kids got sick, and my husband got mad at me, and my wife doesn't like me no more. And uh, Really? If I quit, if Jeff quit, if Damon quit, if Mitch quit, every time we experience friction, Lord, we'd go home before this morning ever even started. Every Sunday morning is filled with friction. The enemy doesn't want a movement of God to take place, so he fills the place with friction. And so if we quit every time there was friction, we would never have a service. And so here's what they did. Friction, they were walking in faith. They saw friction because they got to the house, and the Bible says there was no way to get in. Friction was the crowd. Faith found the stairs. They get to the stairs, and then they said, we still got to carry old boy up the stairs. So friction saw the crowd. Faith found the stairs. Faith carried people up the stairs. They get to the top of the roof, and faith saw the roof, or faith got to the top of the roof. Friction saw the roof because there's no way to get to Jesus. Friction saw the roof, so faith started digging. A lot of people, if you got to pick up a shovel, you're done. This can't be the will of God. I came to preach and teach. Came to preach and teach. I didn't come to dig and have a shovel, right? I came to lay hands on people and watch them get instantaneously healed. I didn't come to work with the kids. Come on. 
I came to worship the almighty living God. I didn't come to escort people to the bathroom and show them where things are in the church. Right? So friction saw the crowd. Faith found the stairs. Friction saw the roof. Faith started digging. Friction saw the distance from the roof to Jesus. Faith found a rope and started lowering a man to the feet of Jesus so they could get a touch from almighty God. And Jesus saw their faith and said, get up and walk. Jesus is ready for some people. Just some people, not worried about titles, not worried about positions, not worried about things, not worried about callings, but just some people who will get out there and do the W-O-R-K spelled F-A-I-T-H and bring somebody to Jesus so Jesus can touch them. Friction will see all the problems. Faith will find a way through it. God's ready for a church of faith to rise up and do it. And now here's the thing, back to the, now to bring this whole story together. In this process, you have the Pharisees who were really supposed to be doing the work of God, and they were judging everything, doing nothing. You have some people who really didn't have authority to do anything, but found a way to get somebody to Jesus who was really doing the work of God. The some people who were here. Today, it is time for us as a church, the body of Christ, to go be somebody's miracle. To go be somebody's miracle. Because here's the truth of the matter. You already got your miracle. When you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you got your miracle. Now you may need another miracle along the way. I understand that. But in it being along the way, you better get on the right way, the path of God for your life. While you're being somebody else's miracle, God will be faithful to supply the miracles you'll need in your life. Do you remember the five loaves and the two fish and the 12 baskets that were left over in the boat? You still have your miracles with you. You've got this. Now it's time to dive deeper. And I'm going to go through this last part pretty quick. What do you really have faith in or who do you really have faith in? Some men knew who Jesus was and exhibited true faith because they proved it by their resolve to not quit. And as they proved it by their true resolve, what are you going to do after you get your miracle? After you get your miracle, what are you going to do? Because here's what most believers end up doing. Jesus said, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. What are you going to do after your miracle? A lot of people, after they get a miracle, they make an idol of it. They make an idol of the bed they were laying on. Jesus said, pick up your bed, go home. Some of you, if you've been miraculously delivered from alcohol, alcoholism, and you haven't touched it since, you haven't done anything with it since, you've been miraculously delivered, have you made an idol of alcoholism in your life? And what do I mean by that? A lot of people, when they're delivered for something, they'll spend an hour talking about how bad they were, how bad alcoholism was, how bad of a person they were, how bad of a husband or a wife they were, how bad alcoholism is, the destruction it caused on the family. You'll list all the stats and alcoholism, alcoholism, alcoholism. And you'll spend five seconds and say, oh, but God is good. He rescued me. He delivered me. And who's your God, alcoholism or the God who delivered you? You should spend 30 seconds on this and five hours telling everybody what you've done since the deliverance has happened. But a lot of people, they stay and they idolize the deliverance that just occurred. You idolize how bad your marriage used to be, thinking you're bragging on good because he delivered you. No, get delivered from a bad marriage and start delivering other people and say, since all that junk, here's what miracle we've been doing. We've seen five families restored. We've seen families born again. We've been leading families to Christ. We've been doing some marriage counseling, and God is developing a ministry because you didn't idolize this. You went forth with your deliverance. Some of us actually, after our miracles, we become Pharisees. Do you remember how great it felt to be forgiven for the first time? 
Do you remember how great it felt when you received that cleansing blood of Jesus Christ? And you're like, oh, the blood of Jesus. I'm cleansed, I'm forgiven, and you truly felt forgiveness. And now about seven or eight years later, you come to church every Sunday, got a little bit bitter instead of getting a lot, lot better. And somebody walks in and you know they need Jesus because you start talking about how bad they are when they walk in. I can't believe they're here. Oh, goodness, do you know what I saw them doing last week? Oh, Lord Jesus, oh, I'm just so glad they're here. <laughs> really? A lot of us, when we get delivered and get a miracle, we become very pharisaical because when somebody walks in that's got the problems, got the adultery problems, got the kid problems, got the family problems, got the money problems, got the, got the problems that have problems themselves, got the problems that have grandkid problems, we look at them and say, well, I just can't believe they're here. You should believe they're here. That's what this place is for. <laughs> It's not for the healthy, it's for the sick, the hurting, the dying, the lost, the ones who need a touch from Almighty God. And if we become a church that's so stuffed shirt and so closed off that you got to be perfect to get in, you better kick me out because I'm not perfect. It's time when we see broken people fall in or, or come in, we fall all over them with the love of Jesus Christ and pick them up because they came in paralyzed. Bring them to the altar so they don't got to come by themselves and lay them before the feet of Jesus so Jesus can look at them and say, I know you're past, but your sins are forgiven. Time to get up and walk and be restored and change a life. Jesus said this. He said, go home. Go home. A lot of people go home and don't change instead of going home and changing your home. You receive a touch from God. He says, get up and go home. You've been delivered, but when you go home, you don't change your lifestyle. Sure, you may quit drinking or smoking or whatever the addiction is that you got delivered from, but you don't change the dynamic of your home. You quit right at the miracle. A lot of people just go home to go home and don't change. They don't go home and change the home. So when you go home, how are you going home today? Are you going home with a great message in your heart and going to sit on the chair and watch football and be the good Pharisee, or are you going to go home and change your home? It's time to go home and change the home and watch what God can begin to do in our lives. 